Okay, hello and welcome, welcome to the LSE. Um, I'm Piers Ludlow, I'm the um, head of the Cold War Studies program here, um, so I suspect that's why I was asked to, 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 to chair this event. Um, but what the book we're going to be talking about tonight is a genuinely fascinating uh, read. Um, I always sort of try and make certain when anything I'm going to review I read entirely, but occasionally it becomes a bit of a chore. I can quite honestly say it never was on this occasion. It's a fascinating and very exciting account of a genuinely uh, exciting and turbulent period of European history. Uh, we get so used at the moment to reading about uh, Western Europe and Europe's uh, toils and tribulations of their current variety that I think sometimes some of us can grow a little nostalgic for the certainties and the seemingly geopolitical rigidity of the Cold War. Uh, I think tonight's book is an excellent reminder of how the certainties were actually profoundly uncertain and how this was a genuinely risky and dangerous uh, period of time. It's also a period which, and a story which is, has a great cast list. Um, it's always a good start if you can get J.F. Kennedy uh, into your title. If you can throw in Khrushchev as well, you're doing uh, very well. But I think one of the great strengths of this book is that it isn't just JFK and Khrushchev, although they loom extremely large indeed. It's also the, the secondary cast of characters is also extremely strong. Ulbricht, the uh, East German leader, um, Adenauer, the West German Chancellor, but also, of course, the rising star of West German politics, Willy Brandt, who was mayor of Berlin, and throw in Lyndon Johnson and Lucius Clay and so on. You've got a genuinely fascinating uh, group of, of characters. And it is also Cold War history at its sort of tensest best with spies and uh, back-channel communications and tension and so on. So it is a genuinely exciting read. And it's a product of a of someone who has got to this book through a very distinguished writing and studious trajectory. One that took in a great deal of journalism, primarily for the uh, Wall Street Journal, the Wall Street Journal Europe, but also the, uh, Wall Street, the as European editor of the Global Wall Street Journal. But now as uh, president and CEO of the Atlantic Council, so more of a kind of think tank approach to things. Uh, Frederick Kemp has written a lot before. He's written about Noriega. He's written about the Soviet Union or the, the, the voyage uh, to the heart of the Russian soul, which sounds deeply intriguing, um, and also, of course, about Germany. So this really brings together all of your expertise, and um, therefore I'm greatly looking forward to everything that you have to say tonight. And uh, I hand over the floor to you. So thank you. Um, th thank you very much, Piers. Uh, I set out in this book to write a book that, that real people would want to read, but real historians would praise. Uh, and so uh, to hear a real historian say those kind things about the book and the work uh, means a lot to me. Um, uh, I highly respect your own work on history of Western Europe. And interestingly, uh, you also looked very much and very intensively at 61 to 63, but from a different perspective, uh, which is uh, 
the UK and whether it would come into uh, Europe or not. So, uh, and I certainly touch about, upon that from a different perspective. Um, let me uh, also tell you what a thrill it is for me to talk here at the LSE. Um, and, um, and it's also a fitting moment, I think, to launch a book in the UK, also given your background, peers, uh, about, uh, about an existential European crisis, um, given that we're now in the throes of another existential European crisis. Uh, perhaps a new book ought to be written now called Berlin 2012, um, uh, as Germany finds itself again at the center uh, of a moment of European history. Uh, in many respects, today's crisis should be viewed as a continuation of the apparently incomplete effort of European states to overcome their historical divisions, animosities, and rivalries through building a lasting, truly democratic, and truly mutually beneficial cooperative basis. Um, uh, but for all the perils uh, that uh, Europe is facing today in the Eurozone crisis, uh, it's my view that Europe faced a far more dangerous moment in 1961, with consequences that could have led uh, to a thermonuclear exchange. Uh, thus, the book's title, subtitle, uh, The Most Dangerous Place on Earth. Um, the, um, uh, and, and those are not my words, those were Nikita Khrushchev's words at the Vienna Summit to John F. Kennedy. Now, the only thing I'll point to in the cover of the UK edition of the book, it's a great honor to be published by Penguin anywhere. Uh, and my US edition and my UK edition are both Penguin. In, in the US it was an imprint called Putnam, G.P. Putnam Sons, and here by Penguin. But you see some differences in American approach uh, and U.S. approach. The American approach was the tanks showing down at Checkpoint Charlie and the cloud could have gone up at any moment. Here, of course, you see a much more subtle British approach of a man peering over the, uh, the wall and wondering what's become of the world. Um, the, uh, uh, but one of the big differences, of course, and decisive difference between um, uh, uh, Germany, uh, between Berlin 1961 and Berlin 2012, were one to write the book today, is that the Germans were divided in 1961. They weren't primary actors at all, and though my book is called Berlin 1961, a lot of the action uh, takes place in, in, in Moscow and, and in Washington. They provided the stage for the uh, superpower struggle between the Soviet Union and the United States and their alliances and ideologies. Uh, the key link um, between the two periods at some, such moments of history is that key decision makers have outsized importance either through the decisions they take or they don't take. Uh, but when we go to the Q&A, if you want to talk about the present time, we can, but that's all, I'm, that's, I'm, I'm not going to touch very much on today. I'm going to go back now 50 years. Um, my ambition with Berlin 1961 was to tell the story of the Cold War's uh, most decisive year in its mo most important place. Uh, 
Uh, I'm showing you here my website, uh, not just to have a promotional moment, uh, but uh, you'll see that I, I will flip through some photos here. Uh, I'm obsessed about collecting photos from the period, and you can actually uh, uh, look at all the photos I have on this website. There's also um, an enhanced ebook version, again, not to promote the ebook version, but the reason for this was we put 44 film clips into the electronic version. And the, and the reason this is so important for this book and this bit of history, and I think this is one of the great things about how we can tell history now through books uh, in, in the modern day, is it was the first year where television played this important of a role in a global event like the Berlin Crisis. 1960 uh, was the year where you had the first presidential debates live and on television. Anyone who listened to these debates on radio thought Richard Nixon, Vice President Richard Nixon had won uh, the debates. Anyone who watched it on television was certain that John F. Kennedy had won the debates. Um, uh, John F. Kennedy's approval rating stayed at above 70% throughout his presidency, throughout all of these crises, clearly a result of a president who knew how to use uh, this, this new um, medium. Uh, let me first outline for you the three primary reasons I wrote the book, um, and I hope, I hope there'll also be uh, reasons why you'll, you might be intrigued by the book. First, I believe historians need to do a much better job of capturing the events and lessons of the Cold War uh, for future generations. I think we have our fill of history on World War I, World War II. The Cold War is more difficult to write about in many respects because it lasts a longer period of time. There's so many different influences. In some ways, we're ideologically captive. Uh, so how you look at the Cold War is, is very much shaped by your ideology. Uh, and, uh, and so my first aim in this was to tell uh, the story, a, a, a piece of Cold War history that I thought had not been properly told. Uh, second, any writer wants a great story. Uh, and a great story is made of compelling events and compelling characters. Berlin 1961 had those. And then finally, and most controversially, I consider 1961 to have marked one of the worst uh, inaugural year foreign policy performances of, uh, uh, of any president, any modern uh, US president, uh, with lessons that are relevant today. It struck me as historically important, the deeper I got into the research for this book, to re-examine uh, President John F. Kennedy's uh, performance in 1961. So let me touch on each one of these points uh, briefly and then get to uh, discussion with all of you after that. Um, first, uh, the events and lessons of the Cold War. I'm a child, I'm a student, and I'm a chronicler of the Cold War for Newsweek and then the Wall Street Journal. Uh, this is me uh, marching behind Soviet lines in Afghanistan in 1985 uh, with people we then called freedom fighters. We now refer to them as the Taliban, uh, but that's another book. Um, uh, uh, as you can see, uh, I've, uh, I've shaved, I've, uh, I've put on some weight, I've changed my attire for this evening. Uh, but the point of showing you this is, for me, uh, the Cold War is not just a professional interest,
but it's a highly personal interest. My parents were German immigrants, both born in the eastern part of Germany before the country's division, and most of our relatives lived behind the Iron Curtain. I was strip searched as a student going over Checkpoint Charlie. My address book was taken away. I visited relatives and they would whisper to me even though I was a college student because they were afraid the next door neighbor was a spitzel, was someone working for the security services listening to their conversations. As a student, this has an impact on you if you come from Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, uh, as a reporter, I covered the last decade of the Cold War, um, the rise of Solidarity in Poland, the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia, all the Reagan-Gorbachev summits, and eventually German unification. Uh, my view evolved over time that we should actually regard the Cold War to have been World War III. Though there were no victory parades or declarations of surrender, there was no Normandy to speak of, the Cold War's outcome changed the world as dramatically as the two world wars before it. Uh, it ended a Soviet empire. It ended the Soviet brand of communist ideology, uh, which had global influence, and it ushered in a new era of globalization. And everything we're experiencing today really has its roots in the end of the Cold War, um, including the Eurozone crisis. Uh, the map of Berlin, for most Americans, was not that familiar of a thing, but for me it was something we talked about at our dinner table all the time. My aim in this book was to tell the story of the construction of the Berlin Wall. As a reporter, I knew the story of how the wall had fallen. I knew pretty well the forces that brought it to an end, uh, and, but I didn't understand the forces that brought it to be constructed. Uh, what caused this wall to come into being, this wall that anchored the Cold War in mutual hostility that would last for a few, few, uh, uh, three more decades after its construction, locking us into habits, procedures, and suspicions that would only fall with that same wall in 1989. And it's useful to look at this map and think about uh, how the world looked at that time. In 1952, May 1952, the 866-mile east-west German border was already closed. Um, uh, at that time, Walter Ulbricht, 1953-1954, Walter Ulbricht was already campaigning to see if they could permanently close the border between east and west Berlin. And as you can see, Berlin is really toward the eastern side of East Germany. It's an island, a uh, free island inside of communist East Germany. This border at the beginning of 1961 is still open. From 1945 to 1961, 2.8 million refugees passed from eastern Germany to west Germany, leaving a country behind of only 17 million people in uh, 1961, 2.8 million people less than were in this general area before. Um, and it's not just 2.8 million people who move across, it's the best, the most motivated doctors, the most motivated farmers, the most uh, gifted professors, uh, the people who can make it in the West. What brings this to a head in 1961 uh, is that the refugee flood is increasing. 
The West German economic miracle is getting stronger and stronger, full employment society. 6.5% growth for the 10 years in West Germany, 6.5% growth for the 10 years leading up to 1961. You have a true, true danger of uh, an imploding East Germany, the Soviet Union's frontline state, with potential ripples across the Soviet bloc and the world. And let's not forget that it was just such a flood of refugees in 1989, this image is uh, familiar to you, that resulted in the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet bloc. Um, so I wanted to know not only what brought about its construction, but specifically what was the role of US presidential leadership and John F. Kennedy in the construction of the Berlin Wall. The fundamental question I was trying to answer, uh, though the wall had fallen in 1989, could its construction have been prevented in 1961? And might we have spared tens of millions of people, an entire generation, three further decades of authoritarian rule? These were not small questions. Or by trying to prevent the Berlin Wall in August of 1961, could we have ignited uh, World War III? Um, my second reason for writing the book was it was a really great story. Uh, and my publisher wanted me to write a book that would sell somewhat better than my first three. Um, the, uh, I, I, and, and it is a rip-roaring story. Uh, uh, Piers was talking about the characters that populated this story. Uh, and for a project of this scope, and I worked on it for seven years, Compelling narrative requires historically important events, compelling characters, and in both respects, 1961 couldn't have been richer. Uh, the year races from the Camelot-like inauguration of, uh, of John F. Kennedy uh, in late January to the Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba in mid-April, so less than three months after the inauguration, to the Vienna summit in June, only six weeks after the Bay of Pigs invasion to the construction of the Berlin Wall only two months after the Vienna summit to a showdown of tanks at Checkpoint Charlie in October only two months after the construction of the Berlin Wall. That's a lot to cram into the inaugural year of the youngest president that America had ever elected. Uh, and the protagonists, Khrushchev and Kennedy, could not have been more contrasting foils. Uh, shown here as a young man, Nikita Khrushchev, uh, beside his erstwhile mentor, uh, Joseph Stalin. In 1961, he was 67 years old, the son of peasants and coal miners, illiterate until his 20s, uh, the hardened survivor of Stalin's purges of World War II and all the uh, uh, struggles for power after the death of Stalin in 1953 and, of course, his renunciation of Stalin and his crimes and his introduction of an effort of peaceful coexistence with the West at the 20th Party Congress in 1956. If Khrushchev was the son of poverty, Kennedy was the product of privilege. Educated in America's most elite institutions, Choate and Harvard, here he's shown with his father, Joe, who was then ambassador to the court of St. James, uh, and elder brother, Joe Jr., uh, whose death in World War II made Jack, made John F. Kennedy uh, the object of his father's, the sole object of his father's bottomless ambitions. 
and pocketbook. Uh, JFK enters office determined to be a great president uh, like his heroes Lincoln and Roosevelt, but he fears that they only achieve greatness in history through wars. And for him, war meant potentially a nuclear exchange, and that was his nightmare. Although American propaganda at the time was all about uh, the threat of Soviet global domination, the truth was at the beginning of 1961, what Khrushchev cared about much more was personal political survival. In May of 1960, uh, his forces shot down a U-2 uh, U.S. spy plane. Uh, that resulted in the collapse of the Paris summit with Dwight D. Eisenhower. Uh, you would have thought shooting down a U.S. spy plane over Soviet territory would be a triumph, but for Khrushchev it was not. Uh, he was uh, suddenly under new criticism from Stalinist remnants uh, that he was not being strong enough against the imperialists uh, and that he was too weak in defense of the cause. Uh, the, uh, we very often uh, underestimate domestic politics, and this book tried not to do that. Uh, if I were to reinvent myself as a history professor, I would want to study the impact of domestic politics on foreign policy decisions. Uh, uh, and I would say that's true of the U.S., it's true of the U.K., it's true of anywhere. But most interestingly, it's true of authoritarian countries, whether it's today's Iran or 1961 Soviet Union. If we improperly under, understand the domestic politics of those countries, how can we intelligently guide policies toward them? Uh, and I think there was a uh, total misunderstanding of the forces uh, that, uh, that Khrushchev was up against and that in 1961 he was not looking at the Berlin Wall and the Berlin situation in isolation. He was looking at the 22nd uh, Party Congress in October of 1961 and he knew he had to somehow come to terms with this problem uh, in order to protect himself in domestic political terms uh, there. He talked about Berlin as being the testicles of the West, and when he wanted the West to scream, he would squeeze there, but instead it was really his Achilles' heel. This is Khrushchev with peasant ladies as he's going on an agricultural tour in 1961 of the Soviet Union, summoning support from the various provincial party cells. And it's not that he's just fighting Stalinist remnants, he's fighting new challenges from Mao Zedong. These two men hated each other, though it was not sufficiently understood uh, in the U.S. Uh, the extent to which uh, they had, uh, they, they, there, there were great animosities between them, which I write quite a bit about in the book. And so he was facing new challenges to uh, uh, his leadership of the world communist movement, even as he was facing new challenges within the Soviet Union. Um, Kennedy campaigned on a platform of change as the youngest president in history at age 43, replacing the oldest uh, president in American history, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was stepping down at age 70. Yet it was Kennedy who, I'm sorry, yet it was Khrushchev who was the change agent when it came to Berlin. Kennedy entered office wanting to protect the status quo of Berlin because he was told that was the best one could do, waiting for history's forces to change the situation. Uh, but Khrushchev enters uh, 1961 as a communist in a hurry, the name of my first paragraph, reaching out through uh, my, my first chapter, reaching out through every uh, channel 
he confined to get an early summit uh, with Kennedy in hopes of negotiating some sort of fix that will address his, um, his Berlin problem. Uh, the two other protagonists of our story are Conrad Adenauer and Walter Ulbricht, um, the uh, Chancellor of West Germany and the leader of East Germany. As so often in U.S. policy, whether then or now, uh, a president's options are dictated uh, by the weaknesses, strengths, and personalities and capabilities of allies and adversaries. Uh, Adenauer and Ulbricht were the founding fathers of two very different versions of Germany, uh, one capitalist, one communist, one democratic, one authoritarian, whose striking differences, personal and political, uh, would, would shape their eras. Um, this is Adenauer on January 5th, 1961, his 85th birthday. Uh, you'll see to his side uh, orphans dressed up as dwarfs. That's Snow White here on the far left side. Um, uh, he, uh, at age 85, has rebuilt Germany, West Germany, from the ashes of the Third Reich. As I said, 6.5% annual growth figures, the third largest exporter in the world just 16 years after the war and still divided. Um, and what he cares about is also domestic politics. He's running for re-election in September of 1961 at age 85, wanting his fourth term and wanting to give, keep uh, dread, the dreaded socialist uh, Berlin mayor, Willy Brandt, out of office with his Social Democratic Party. Um, uh, Ulbricht, uh, cramped in demeanor, small in stature, cold, introverted, workaholic, avoids friendships, distances himself from his family members. This guy's really a lot of laughs, uh, Walter Ulbricht. Um, uh, he pr pursued his strict Stalinist version of socialism with relentless focus, a secret police force that was more disciplined and prevalent than the Nazi Gestapo and an unwavering distrust of others. Uh, what unified these uh, two men, Adenauer and Ulbricht, are two things. First of all, they fundamentally distrust their fellow Germans because of the, the experience of World War II. The Adenauer's answer is to embed Germany in Western institutions. Ulbricht's answer is to put up strict uh, uh, socialist, uh, excuse me, Stalinist guardrails. Um, Ulbricht, and, the, and there's another thing that unifies them, and that is a fundamental distrust uh, of the men upon whom they're dependent. Uh, Ulbricht considered Khrushchev to be intellectually inferior and ideologically weak. He'd lost patiences with the promises uh, that uh, Khrushchev had made to him about how he would close the Berlin border uh, starting in December of 1958 uh, and help him solve his Berlin problem. The conventional wisdom in the U.S was that Ulbricht was a Soviet puppet. But my research really showed a different uh, conclusion, which is the worse his situation became in East Germany, the greater his leverage on Khrushchev. Khrushchev had resisted closing the Berlin border because he knew the impact on uh, communist global prestige. He knew uh, what it said about the failures of the system. Uh, and so he was increasingly under pressure from Ulbricht to act while he was resistant to doing so. Uh, Adenauer, and, and this is another sign of never believe press photos from a, uh, a photo op. Adenauer considered Kennedy, uh, supported by reports of his intelligence service, to be a man of weak character who wasn't up to the Soviet challenge. He believed that his election could, uh, uh, could uh, directly endanger the future of the West German state 
that he had so painstakingly uh, constructed. Um, and, uh, uh, and he also uh, knew that Kennedy, as a senator, had written a piece in the American Journal of Foreign Affairs that he considered Conrad Adenauer a shadow of the past and one had to move on to new leaders. This article was circulated broadly in Bond circles after Kennedy's uh, election. Um, now, I'll spend a little time here, uh, although he was not a major character, he is your character, uh, British Prime Minister Harold uh, Macmillan, who plays a very interesting role in this book. And I, I spend some time on the fringe characters because I think this is the texture of the period. Uh, from the very frivolous uh, Miss Universe uh, of 1961 was a East German refugee made good, no doubt uh, chosen as Miss Universe, not, uh, not incidentally for propaganda reasons as well in the West. Um, Harold Macmillan uh, uh, has grown convinced and he's shown this during the Eisenhower administration, that London's aspirations in the world turned on its ability to influence Washington. Uh, now that was relatively easy for him in the Eisenhower administration where they had more or less the same generation, same war experience, same sort of war experience. And he knew he was going to have some problems with the president uh, that, he, uh, uh, that he described uh, to his columnist friend, Henry Brandon, as that cocky young Irishman. Um, uh, Macmillan had come to realize America represented, in his words, quote, the new Roman Empire and we Britons, like the Greeks of old, must teach them how to make it go. Uh, he continues, we can at most aspire to civilize and occasionally to influence them. Uh, so the trick for Macmillan is how to get Kennedy's consent to play Rome to Macmillan's Greece. Um, uh, Eisenhower's ambassador to the UK at that time, Jock Whitney, told Macmillan that JFK was, quote, obstinate, sensitive, ruthless, and highly sexed. Um, uh, there are some things you just put in the book because even if they have nothing to do with Berlin 1961, uh, they really are quite interesting. Uh, so at the end of 1961, Kennedy shocked the puritanical monogamous Scott and says, I wonder how it is with you, Harold. If I don't have a woman uh, for three days, I get a terrible headache. Um, now, I'm told Harold Macmillan uh, said it's just the opposite with me, but I haven't seen that recorded <laughs> in, anywhere in my research. Um, when left alone to decide their course, Adenauer's solution, as I said, was to embed his Germans in Western institutions, and Earl Brooks was uh, to put them in strict Stalinist guardrails. So um, the, third reason, uh, the third reason I wrote my book uh, was, oh, one other thing on Macmillan. Macmillan is considered by um, the hardliners in Berlin, and, and Washington is uh, is divided between hardliners in Berlin and softliners on Berlin. Hardliners on Berlin are Dean Acheson, Paul Nitze, the Berlin Mafia that's, that's in the embassy taking care of Berlin affairs. The softliners are uh, 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 Schlesinger, Everell Harriman, uh, and, uh, and, and importantly among the Allies, probably Harold Macmillan. Um, the hardliners in Berlin called the softliners in Berlin the, by the acronym SLOB, softliners on Berlin, slobs. Um, 
So nothing has changed. Washington continues to be divided. Their interagency struggles that get in the way of decisions. The third reason I wrote my book was because of what the events of 1961 had to say about presidential leadership. And as I said, this uh, has been the, uh, the most uh, controversial part of it. A half century uh, separates John F. Kennedy uh, and uh, the, uh, John F. Kennedy, the first Catholic American president, uh, and Barack Obama, uh, who at age 47 would become the first African American president. Much different world now. I would argue that it was more dangerous in 1961, but less complex. You had a superpower struggle to manage all over the globe. Uh, for, for, for Obama, it's probably less dangerous. There's, there, I, I, I think the threat of nuclear exchange between great powers has become almost inconceivable, uh, but he's facing uh, brush fires uh, in all sorts of different places. Uh, there are also many fascinating parallels. Obama, in his 1968 or his uh, 2008 campaign, uh, campaigned on change we can believe in. There's Teddy Kennedy, there's Caroline Kennedy. He's put himself in the Kennedy mantle, and he borrowed liberally from the language and spirit of the Kennedy campaign. And just as a youthful and charismatic Kennedy hoped to influence and inspire a new generation uh, following eight years of a Republican predecessor, that has also been uh, President Obama's hope. Yet I believe what really connects these two so stories is the reality that the most perilous moment for the United States and its interests comes when you combine a time of historic trial and change with the inauguration of a young, inexperienced American president who inevitably must learn on the job. Yet, some pre yet these presidents, despite their inadequate preparation, are often playing match point on their first day in office. It is the most important uh, job in the world where so little previous experience is required. U.S. presidents fail because what the job requires is a range of native talents and learned skills that no real person has ever possessed. I do call 1961 one of the worst uh, inaugural year performances of any modern American president, but don't trust me on this. When Ellie Abel, the Detroit News Bureau chief, late in 1961, asked President Kennedy if he can write a book about his first year in office, Kennedy responds, who would want to read a book about an administration that has nothing to show for itself but a string of disasters? An early chapter of my book entitled Kennedy's First Mistake tracks the first hours of the Kennedy presidency when he ignores a number of conciliatory gestures by Khrushchev, possibly the best and last chance he had during his presidency to test the possibility of improved relations with the Soviets. Um, I put this up not just to show you the eyeglass uh, uh, fashion of the day. Uh, uh, what Khrushchev does is on the day after the inauguration, he brings in the U.S. ambassador and he announces that he's going to release these RB-47 uh, RB, uh, pilots, uh, excuse me, airmen. Uh, to Kennedy as his sort of inaugural gift. He had held them throughout the election in his not-so-subtle way to support Kennedy in his election campaign against Richard Nixon, knowing that if he had released them during the campaign, he actually might have helped swing the vote toward Nixon. Uh, he also uh, uh, published the entire inaugural address of Kennedy, first time that had ever been done in the Soviet Union. He reduced the jamming of radio broadcasts, but Kennedy, uh, though he's happy enough to herald all this in his first press conference, uh, 
Um, first press conference carried live on television, and even though he was happy to celebrate their return, he's totally obsessed at this point by a speech that he's been given uh, that he interprets as Khrushchev escalating the Cold War specifically to test him and against him across the developing world. Yet the speech was nothing more than Khrushchev's belated report on a November party conference of 81 parties that was just meant to patch up Chinese-U.S. differences. If Kennedy had read his transition memos from the Eisenhower administration, he would have known that. Instead, he decides he has this epiphany. He now knows that, he, that Khrushchev's not to be trusted, that he's escalating a war against him. So from the 10 days between his inaugural address and his State of the Union, he shifts his tone to, from brilliant ambiguity to an almost uh, apocalyptic tone. Uh, and Khrushchev backs off from his gestures and efforts to gain an audience with Kennedy and goes into confrontational mode as well after this. Just one quote from the State of the Union speech so you get a little flavor. This speech was given before he has convened his Soviet experts 10 days into office. Quote, each day, this is, he's saying this right now, each day the crises multiply, each day their solution grows more difficult, each day we draw nearer the hour of maximum danger. I feel I must inform the Congress that our analyses over the last 10 days make it clear that in each of the principal areas of crisis, the tide of events has been running out and time has not been our friend. Amazing how much a brilliant 43-year-old can learn in 10 days. Uh, his missteps continue as the narrative of 1961, the Bay of Pigs invasion of April, the failed Vienna summit in June, the Berlin border closure in August, uh, and the showdown of Soviet and U.S. tanks. What's important in all this is not what we think. What's important is what is Khrushchev thinking. And he tells his son, Sergei, after the failure of the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, I don't understand Kennedy. Can he really be that indecisive? And he compares it uh, unfavorably with his own decisive action in Budapest in 1956. Best of all, for uh, Khrushchev, even as JFK was failing in Cuba, he's put the first man in space, Yuri Gagarin. Uh, ticker tape parades, uh, you know, uh, and suddenly his political standing and momentum within the Soviet Union, where he's being challenged by Soviet remnants, where he's being challenged politically, has shifted dramatically. It was only after that moment that he then engages with Kennedy and agrees to come to the Vienna summit which would take place six weeks later. By Kennedy's own account, to New York Times columnist Scotty Reston, just minutes after the two-day summit ends, Kennedy feels he was outmaneuvered and savaged by Khrushchev. He calls it the worst day of his life and rightly predicts that Khrushchev will test him further in Berlin. Kennedy's advisors warned him not to get drawn into ideological debate, but he was. On day two, Kennedy is ambushed by Khrushchev on Berlin, which was not supposed to play a central role at the summit at all. Uh, and, and Khrushchev delivers a war-threatening ultimatum. My book doesn't spend a lot of time on the tabloid elements of the Kennedy world, the womanizing and his health issues, but I think it played a role in Vienna, so I do write about it. Kennedy was experiencing his worst back pain, uh, source originally of a war injury, uh, in 
Paris before his trip to, uh, he stopped in Paris to see de Gaulle on his way to Vienna uh, and in Vienna. He was on a series of medications and shots to deal uh, with these pains that almost certainly colored his performance. Administered by a doctor named Max Jacobson, nicknamed Dr. Feelgood, Doctor to the Stars, Tennessee Williams, Truman Capote, and Jackie. Uh, the shots included hormones, animal organ cells, steroids, vitamins, enzymes, and most importantly, amphetamines to combat fatigue. Uh, we know that because uh, uh, Robert Kennedy, the Attorney General, and his brother uh, provided these later to the, uh, this shot later to the F Food and Drug Administration. Potential side effects, hyperactivity, hypertension, impaired judgment, nervousness, mood swings from overconfidence to bouts of depression. Just the man you want sitting down with Nikita Khrushchev. Um, I argue in the book that Kennedy in Vienna essentially writes the script that Khrushchev ultimately follows. Uh, in the construction of the Berlin Wall on August 13th, two months after the Vienna summit. And he does so by making clear to Khrushchev that the Soviet leader could do whatever he wished on territory he controlled as long as he doesn't touch West Berlin freedoms and allied access to the city. That, was, that took away the ambiguity that Presidents Truman and Eisenhower always left where a Soviet leader could never be sure if they broke four power rights how the U.S. would respond. So Khrushchev very much follows this script. He approves the action by East German forces to close the border, but the barriers were constructed inside East Berlin territory, a few paces inside East Berlin territory. Even on the night the border was closed, East German soldiers continued to allow West, uh, Western, uh, particularly US diplomats, to pass. Kennedy at best acquiesced to the border closure and at worst welcomed it. And to a certain extent, you can understand it. He thought this was solving a key area of tension that would allow him to better reach nuclear test ban talks, which is what he cares about. This is his priority with Khrushchev. He wants to uh, do confidence-building measures through nuclear arms negotiations that would lead to a reduction of tensions in Berlin, while for Khrushchev, Berlin was front and center. He believed by allowing the Soviets to end the refugee flow that would reduce tensions with Moscow and create a more cooperative negotiating partner. However, uh, he was proven wrong. Uh, a little more than two months later, U.S. and Soviet tanks would face off across Checkpoint Charlie in their first and last direct military confrontation of the Cold War which was ended only after further Kennedy compromises regarding four-power procedures in Berlin. Some say that Kennedy, by acquiescing to the Berlin Wall, and this is probably the major debate that's taking place over the book, made the world a safer place. He himself at the time said, better a wall than a war. Yet the facts show that Kennedy's retreat in 1961 didn't lessen tensions at all, uh, but resulted in the October tank showdown and then the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962, a year later, which might have resulted in war. If Khrushchev had not perceived Kennedy as so weak in 1961, he never would have risked placing nuclear missiles just off the Florida coast in Cuba for the first time giving them a, a, a nuclear strike ability on Washington and New York, had they been placed. During the Cuban crisis, so in the second year of the Kennedy administration, 
uh, he learned that the Soviets had only been emboldened by his indecisiveness, and then he demonstrated the backbone that had been so lacking in 1961. From that point forward, we do see a different Kennedy. And if you question whether Khrushchev was really prompted to do Cuba because of Berlin, you have to look at his conversations with his son, Sergei, where he said that Kennedy would huff and puff and huff and puff, but accept the missiles. You have to see his, uh, the notes from his meetings with the Presidium, which underscore that. Uh, now, this different Kennedy, the post-Cuba missile crisis Kennedy, is the one that we know and the one that we revere. And this was the Kennedy who, in 1963, spoke to cheering Berlin crowds the words that every German knows to this day, Ich bin ein Berliner. I won't go through this speech. It's a very no, well-known speech, but the lines are, are, it's one of the best speeches ever delivered by any American president. But its most moving lines were written in the motorcade through Berlin, toughened up during the motorcade in Berlin by a Kennedy who, for the first time, became a Berliner. All presidents learn on the job, and perhaps the story of Kennedy's three years is the most dramatic evidence of that that one can imagine. From the passive enabler of the Berlin Wall in 61, to the brave commander-in-chief of the Cuban Missile Crisis, to the brilliant defender of freedom in 1963. People ask me, was Kennedy a great president? And my answer is, we'll never know. He didn't serve long enough. Uh, uh, at the time of our election in November, President Obama will already have served one year longer than President Kennedy in the entirety of his time in office. Kennedy didn't have the luxury of a second term, so we're left having to judge what we can see before us. In his introduction to my book, General Scowcroft, two-time National Security Advisor, rightly says history doesn't reveal its alternatives. We'll never know if he had been resolute whether the Cold War might have ended earlier or whether we would have had a third world war. But we do know what did follow. The Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 and 28 more years of Berlin Wall, and Kennedy couldn't have known at that time that it would ever come down. Ultimately, the story would end well, but that was because Kennedy in Cuba would begin to reverse the perilous course he set in 1961. What Kennedy couldn't undo was the wall that had risen as he passively stood by, uh, which for three decades, and perhaps uh, for all of history, would remain as the iconic image of what free system, unfree systems can impose when free systems uh, fail to resist. So thank you for your attention. I am happy to uh, join you in the discussion. And, and any of you go to Berlin today, this is the Brandenburg Gate. I've got to get the right date on this. I thought it was December 1961, but the fortifications are a little bit stronger than I think they would have been at that time. You'll see the quadriga has now been turned in the other direction, and uh, there, the U.S. Embassy has been built there, Hotel Adlon, but, uh, but that's the way it looked then. Okay, um, great. Well, we now have a Q&A. I had a first question myself lined up, but I see that there's already enthusiasts who want to leap in, so I have a chance to ask later, so why don't I start straight away? Yes, the gentleman in the white shirt there. You wait for the microphone, please. Uh, thank you. Um, thanks so much for an excellent talk. 
May I ask you very much about a secondary, secondary character in all this, namely Eric Honecker. Now, my, he obviously, Eric Honecker, now he obviously took over from Albrecht some years later. My understanding was that he was a Politburo member who was actually responsible for building the wall and sealing off the city of Berlin. Would you care to say something about that? Was his, was his role widely recognized at the time within East Germany and the communist world? Uh, uh, this was Eric Honecker's Sternstunde. So in, in German, this was his star moment. Um, this is where he was, uh, he, he, was a, he was totally loyal to Ulbricht, not so much in the end, but totally loyal to Ulbricht. Uh, he was methodical. He really put together the entire incredible logistical feat of not only building and constructing uh, let's not forget, it wasn't a Berlin Wall on night one. It was uh, a closed border. And the, more, the greater fortifications came only 48 hours later after the Soviets and Ulbricht had seen uh, that there was no response from the West or the U.S. side. It's unclear what they would have done had the U.S. come through and started knocking down barriers, which under their four power rights they would have been justified to do because East German forces actually had no right to be doing what they were doing. Um, the uh, General Lucius Clay, who came there later on, was the hero of the Berlin Airlift, actually thought uh, that the, um, uh, that, um, uh, that the Soviets would have stood back then because they were not involved in the construction. It was only East German forces. This plan was totally put together by Eric Honecker. You know, every bale of barbed wire, every sawhorse, uh, the measure of how many soldiers you wanted per square meter, this was done in the most exacting uh, uh, German manner. Uh, and, uh, and this was really Honecker's breakthrough. And through this period of time, he becomes acknowledged as, as the true number two and heir to power of Ulbricht, which he wasn't really at the very beginning of this. Uh, was it true, was it acknowledged and was it known uh, throughout the communist world and, uh, and in the US? Um, I'm actually not sure about that, uh, whether it was or not. Um, but, uh, but it certainly was known to Ulbricht and he had so, such total confidence. And also very interesting that so little of it leaked. Uh, when you're buying this mass of uh, barbed wire, and it couldn't all be acquired. A lot of it was acquired by, from British sources, by the way. People found tags on some of the barbed wire uh, uh, during the evening. So, um, uh, but it's, uh, uh, but this was Honecker's moment. Okay, question over here. Thank you. It was also Eric Milka's moment. I mean, Milka was the head of the state security services. And they had experienced in 1953 how much went wrong, and they used uh, in the, in, in the uh, June uprising. And so Milka also had his, uh, his people out all over the place, uh, making sure that nothing rose up during the, during the night that the wall was being, being built. Thank you very much. As you pointed out, the GDR authorities were very careful to construct the wall within their own boundary. And I was wondering, first of all, frankly, would the GDR have survived without that wretched wall? And would the situation have been even more dangerous had that not been constructed? Also, frankly, um, would, was a Democrat president any more capable of preventing the war from being built than the Republican president was incapable of preventing the Hungarians from being crushed five years before? Um, I, I, let me uh, go to the uh, second question first. 
I don't think it has much to do with Democrat and Republican. Uh, if you look at Kennedy uh, during his campaign, he, he, part of the reason he won was he, he took a far harder line toward the Soviets than Nixon did. Uh, and uh, there, were, there were two wings of the Democratic Party. One was much harder line toward, uh, toward the Soviets, and one was more accommodationist. Uh, and, and Kennedy, in his campaign, clearly allied himself with the harder line. And the beginning of his administration, he brings in Dean Acheson, uh, uh, the hawk's hawk uh, from the Truman administration, to lead his reexamination of NATO, uh, nuclear weapons use, and Berlin. So he's, he, he understands that he also got elected from Southern Democrats who were much more um, hardline toward the Soviets and toward communism. So I, I don't think this is necessarily a Democratic-Republican thing. One big difference from 1956 in Hungary and Berlin is there are U.S. soldiers in Berlin and it's a four-power city. And in, in Hungary, uh, uh, you know, I, I think people in Hungary were led to believe through certain statements that the U.S. would intervene. I don't think a U.S. Uh, president could not intervene uh, in Berlin, given the presence of soldiers who couldn't stop a conventional attack at all, but were a trip wire to a nuclear exchange. And at that point, the Soviet Union could reach London and could reach uh, Paris with nuclear weapons, but couldn't reach the U.S. Uh, and the U.S. could reliably reach uh, and annihilate uh, uh, many parts of the, uh, the Soviet Union. And, and there's horrendous, in, in the book you'll see one chapter called Nuclear Poker, where I really walk people through the first strike nuclear planning uh, uh, of, of the U.S. at that time. Um, it never became presidential policy, but it's just horrendous. One really comes up with body counts and how it would be, uh, how it would be conducted, et cetera, et cetera. Um, first question was... Yeah, I, I mean, the biggest debate about the book is exactly that, that one way or another, Khrushchev had to do something to save the GDR and better this than a war. And so why are you so hard on Kennedy? Um, and and I, can, I understand that argument. And, uh, and without some stopping of the refugee flow, um, uh, I think East Germany would have continued to hemorrhage. I guess my argument is why was it in our interest to help them solve the problem when I don't really think they would have gone to war with the U.S. in, in Germany because of the nuclear stakes at that point. Um, and I think we learned through the 1948 uh, airlift, uh, although at that point the U.S. had a nuclear monopoly, that when pressed the Soviet Union uh, would uh, ultimately back down. But even if you don't believe that, even if you don't believe that, did the wall actually make the world a less dangerous place. And, that, and that's where my argument is the Cuban Missile Crisis says it didn't. It was the Cuban Missile Crisis combined with the Berlin Wall that made it a less dangerous place and then held things in check and, and sort of froze. It, it really became a frozen conflict at that point. Okay, yes, question, question here in the... Yeah. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, because normally from what I have read and what I have heard, a lot of, a lot of um, members of the U.S. public, or ten, or some historians tend to remember quite romantically 
a lot of the presidents with with war victories or some or small significant victories. So, in a time when we're trying to sort of move away from wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, sort of get away from 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 wars such as those, what do you think the U.S. public could be or rather should be looking for in the net in a president in the next um, five or ten years? So. Um, I have a, a, a good friend who was recently a national security advisor to President Obama whose name is General Jim Jones and he says to me that uh, vision without resources is hallucination and um, and and uh, and so I think what you want is you want to have a president who matches uh, vision uh, with resources and pragmatic understanding of the world. So uh, I think you want an enlightened realist. Uh, I'm not sure I want an idealist as president uh, who doesn't have a real realist strain and understands the capabilities of the U.S. and the realities of the countries we're dealing with. Uh, as you deal with Syria, you know you have to think about not only actions but outcomes. Uh, and and so uh, so the kind of president I think we need is is an enlightened realist, someone who doesn't forget the ideals that we all stand for and stands by them truthfully and and consistently, but also understands that you uh, that you can't do what you can't manage, and and you can't uh, dictate. Um, uh, you know everything that's taking place in in, in in countries we may consider adversaries. Okay. Yes. I, there was a yeah. Uh, the man in the white shirt in the middle there. Uh, thank you. Um, you said at the beginning of your talk that Khrushchev was looking to cement his power. How real do you consider the threat to his leadership to be at this time? Um, Khrushchev later uh, spoke to uh, an American doctor who came to treat his daughter and told her that the May 1960 U2 crisis was the beginning of his decline. And, you know, uh, it's one third-hand source, but it makes sense. Um, he takes over in 1956, he consolidates uh, power through the anti-party coup in 1957. He probably has a window from late 57 to, to uh, May of 1960 where he has uh, a greater degree of power, and he actually uses it. He, 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 he does a lot of things in agriculture. He moves things economically, etc. And then the argument is that from that point forward, he's a little bit more on the defensive. Um, I'm not a Sovietologist. I, I did as much Sovietology as I could in the seven years uh, you know, uh, coming to terms with this book and this story. That makes sense to me. Um, and, uh, and so I think that he was not in, in uh, I, I think he looked at the October Party Congress as a crucial event because he himself had participated in ousters of others and he knew how the work, it wasn't necessarily the Party Congress that it happened, it happened in the months up to the Party Congress because you actually wanted a clean Party Congress. And so he was very focused in that year in consolidating uh, consolidating his power. I mean, clearly, uh, he didn't do it entirely. Uh, he didn't stay in power clearly as long as he would have liked to. Uh, but, uh, but I think uh, the uh, 61 was a, 
a reconsolidation of some of his power. And then I think 62 Cuban Missile Crisis was the beginning of a, of a new erosion again. Again, this is by someone who is not a trained Sovietologist, so, so this, is, this is more me and my superficial journalist guys. Yes, the gentleman is the second row. Uh, yes, that. I was very interested indeed in your remarks concerning President Kennedy's first 10 days in office. And I just wonder whether um, he was obviously taking advice from his national security advisers, he was taking advice, advice from foreign policy advisers, and the JFK uh, retinue would have considered this very deeply before he made any announcements on Soviet policy and so forth. I don't think it's a decision he just came to like that in 10 days, was it? This was a, a fairly considered matter. Um, and maybe it was Dean Acheson, who you know at the Cuban Missile Crisis, very strictly saying to him, look, be very careful how you deal with the Soviet Union. I don't think he was that inexperienced. I don't get the impression from reading it. I, I just wonder what your views were that, that he hadn't deeply considered the matter before he made that statement. Um, the, President Kennedy is similar to President Obama in the following respect. He is his own and was his own Secretary of State and National Security Advisor. Um, uh, Obama... Uh, really makes a lot of these decisions himself or in a very small trusted circle. And for Kennedy, that small trusted circle was Bobby uh, and, uh, and, um, and became even more so after the Bay of Pigs where he really came to distrust his intelligence services and his military. Uh, you're talking about those 10 days. And, and from what I could research, and there aren't as many living witnesses from the time that I could interview as I would have liked, uh, from what I could research, he seems to have been terribly influenced by the ambassador to Moscow at the time, Tommy Thompson, who uh, drew his attention to this speech and said, this may be the real uh, Khrushchev. Um, the interesting thing is it was Tommy Thompson at a time when he was campaigning to keep his job in Moscow, and he was shocked and thought Kennedy was going too far with the State of the Union and was much more of the belief that Khrushchev was the best alternative one could have in the Soviet Union and one should work with them, if not prop him up, then at least realize that his departure would have caused greater problems. And so you see a series of cables from, from Tommy Thompson to the president uh, 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 between his election and his inauguration. Um, and then you see the president deciding to keep him on. Um, but you really see uh, Kennedy carried this speech, uh, copies of Khrushchev's speech around with him in the pocket and was known to take it out at parties saying, read this, this is what Khrushchev is saying. Uh, this is the real Khrushchev. I've had my epiphany. I now know what this man is all about. So uh, there, you know, this is not a man who had a lot of self-doubt. Uh, Obama's not a man who has a lot of self-doubt. You know, these are very confident and self-confident uh, individuals. And so, um, uh, so I, 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 I don't know beyond Tommy Thompson what, what, Mac, uh, you know, what, what Mac Bundy told him, his national security advisor. I didn't find anything with Bundy talking to him at that point about this issue. Um, uh, so, so I think it really was, uh, you know, uh, a young president who knew that his history was going to be made in how he interacted with the Soviet Union. He knew that, but he didn't know whether it was going to be through, through uh, uh, cooperation or through confrontation. 
And, and he felt, you know, I see this speech, I've got to show my backbone, I'm now going to give this speech to the State of the Union. So, so that's, that's as much as I could come up with it. And I really think that the uh, U.S. Ambassador in Moscow had, a, had played a big role during that period of time. He then walks it back at the first meeting with Kennedy of the Soviet advisors where he essentially says, you know, Khrushchev's the best you're going to get. You need to meet him. You need to accommodate him. You need to take up his, his measure, which Kennedy then agrees with. And then he issues Khrushchev an invitation to a summit only after the point at which Khrushchev has lost interest. Uh, and, 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 and there's a great scene in the book about uh, Thompson flying back from Washington with Kennedy's invitation to Khrushchev to come to a summit and he couldn't even get an appointment with Khrushchev to deliver the letter. Uh, and he finally has to chase him down in Siberia 10 days after Kennedy has written the letter and finally delivers him the letter in Siberia where Khrushchev essentially responds, yeah, maybe I'll come to a meeting, maybe I won't. But it's, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, I've come to believe through, through, through my reporting uh, uh, as a journalist and also through this research that individuals play uh, an enormous role in history. Uh, and I do think historical forces, history, historians have this debate all the time, I, I think historical forces are, are key if the U.S. economy and our system had been not very dynamic, then, then you know, all bets would have been off. But, but I do think that leaders at such moments make, make a huge, huge amount of difference. Okay, there's a question here. So, <clears throat> good evening. Thank you for both your time and your talk. I'm just curious, when, you, when people talk about Khrushchev in general during this period, it's always to note the highly volatile political situation he was facing, um, the reactions to de-Stalinization, China, etc. But when people mention Kennedy, you hear much more of his personal, he's a young president, as you yourself have mentioned, he's got to prove his backbone, much less about the political forces acting on him. So, for example, I wonder if you could just explain very quickly, the, um, the, House of an, the American House of, House of an American Activities Committee, sorry, um, forces like that, what impact do they have on Kennedy? Now, I, I, I'm sorry I didn't pick up all of it. Is, this is a question about Kennedy's image and how it's been shaped, or is it? Yes, correct, but also about how the politics in America have influenced him as a president, and especially in such an early period uh, of his presidency. Um, you know, I, I think part of the reason that this book has done relatively well is, and, and has been accepted by historians, is I didn't come in, in, into it with an ideological axe to grind. And so the Democratic Party has a vested interest in, in, in keeping the stature of Kennedy high. And then the Kennedy myth-making machine is really breathtaking. It's, it's remarkable. Um, uh, and there is no doubt that when he was elected, there was uh, national and global celebration. Uh, he won by a hair's breadth, but I remember as a, a, a then uh, you know, seven, eight-year-old that I had his picture on my wall, and I adored and loved this president. You know, none of this is made up, and, and he really, uh, there was a feeling of reinvigoration, there was a feeling of refreshment, there was a feeling, so there's absolutely no doubt that in terms of how he changed the American public mood, how he changed the world mood toward America was, was really quite astonishing. If you actually t judge the historical record, I think it's tougher to, to, to make a judgment about his greatness. Um, and that's, that's sort of where I come down 
as neither Democrat or Republican on this issue is, is you know, let's look at the record. 62, 63, you know, in terms of Soviet Union, not bad. 61, disastrous. Um, and and so, uh, um, so I do think that there's, um, because there isn't a lot of record, there's not a second term. Most great presidents don't become great if they don't have a second term. Uh, what happens is we then, we've judged Kennedy so much from our own emotions and perspective rather than based on his actual record of achievement, my view. Okay, I think we have time for a couple more questions. Yes, Dr. Barnes over there. Um, thank you very much for a fascinating talk. Um, I've got a couple of questions. Um, I think you've touched on this um, to a certain degree, but hopefully you can say a little bit more just regarding, I suppose, the, the alternative to building the wall. Um, I suppose the threat that Khrushchev had sort of been putting forward and Ulbricht kind of possibly the tail wagging the dog with this, pushing forward to actually seal off the whole of Berlin being a possible other alternative, which I think for both Eisenhower and Kennedy was probably the greater fear than the wall straight through the center of the wall, the idea of cutting off West Berlin from West Germany, effectively. If maybe you could say a little bit more than that and how maybe that fear um, influenced Kennedy's reaction to the building of the wall through the center. But the other question, which I think you've also partly answered and might, uh, might affect a few of my students that are in, are in the room today, I recently um, posed a question in, in the master's exam on a course that covered both Berlin and the Cuban crisis. Um, which of the two crisis, crises had a greater impact on the Cold War as a whole? And I'd like to, uh, if you could maybe follow up on that question, which hopefully won't uh, have a negative impact on a few of my students in the room today. So, <laughs> thank you. Um, the, the answer to your second question is perhaps a little bit obvious, uh, given the title of my book. And, and, uh, but, uh, but I just think the Berlin crisis was the more important and the less investigated. Uh, and uh, I mean, there, I, the Cuban Missile Crisis has been investigated down to the nanosecond. Um, and um, the other thing is, I think in the Cuban Missile Crisis, pretty early on in the crisis, you could see that accommodation was being reached and both sides were looking for ways to back down. Uh, and I think in the showdown of tanks at Checkpoint Charlie, something could have just gone wrong because you know, there wasn't very good communication between the two sides. And, uh, and if you had had one nervous gunner on one of the tanks, uh, who knows what, what, what might have happened. Uh, I also don't believe either side, well, I, I don't believe the Soviets would have been willing to go to war over Cuba. Uh, you know, they had shed their blood over Berlin and Germany. Uh, you know, they were there already with all of their troops. This was a nice gambit and was an interesting thing to try, uh, but it wasn't ex existential. Um, and, 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 uh, and so, I, and the other argument is, is my core argument, which is Cuba wouldn't have happened without Berlin, and therefore Berlin, uh, ergo, Berlin is more important. Uh, if that is the cause of Cuba. Uh, so, uh, so for all those reasons, uh, I think it's more important. And the first question, briefly. Um, well, I mean, they did cut off the entire access to, to West Berlin, so the wall and the, the, the perimeter goes all around, I think. Uh, um, but um, uh, I, I think the most, 
there are two things here. First of all, what's most interesting is the extent to which Khrushchev just sticks to the script. You know, Kennedy more or less outlines in Vienna what he's willing to accept. Um, and it's, it's, he, they execute primarily according to that. What I found interesting as well is the, uh, uh, the degree to which um, the documents I most wanted uh, and requested under freedom of information uh, were still classified and wouldn't be given to me. There's still secrets around this. Um, uh, one of the most interesting things in, in the book, I believe, and in that period, were secret talks that were being taking place between Bobby Kennedy, the Attorney General, and uh, a Soviet spy, military spy, Georgi Bolshakov, who was serving in Washington. And after the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy wants more direct communication with Khrushchev. And so he puts his brother in, and I go into some detail, I probably have more detail on this episode and these episodes with Bol Bolshakov in this book than other books that have been published. Um, um, and and, uh, and from uh, the Bay of Pigs to the Vienna summit, they start meeting uh, every two weeks or so, and then, uh, and, and then at certain points of the year, even more often than that, and we know they discussed uh, and met ahead of the Berlin Wall. We have no idea what they discussed. There's no record of it that I can find. Uh, and, and, and Bobby Kennedy uh, apologized later in his oral history of the uh, Kennedy Library that he didn't keep a written record of the meetings, and he reported orally. Uh, to his brother. Now, the peril of this relationship, Bolshakov and Bobby Kennedy, is pretty obvious, which is uh, Bobby Kennedy can relay to Bolshakov the President of the United States' inner thinking and can even inadvertently give away secrets and, and, and intentions, while Bolshakov could only be a message carrier uh, and, and kept Khrushchev more at arm's length in this relationship. So I think even this relationship was pretty, uh, pretty ill-considered. Um, uh, the, uh, but uh, it played a crucial role in the stand down uh, uh, of check tanks at Checkpoint Charlie and Bobby Kennedy does tell us that, that Bolshakov played a key role in, in, in solving that crisis but we have absolutely no idea and, and for me looking at both US response and Soviet actions on August 13th I just kept thinking there had to be some more direct communication ahead of this for uh, the Soviets and the East Germans to have acted so confidently and for the U.S. to have responded not even with sanctions. But, uh, but all you can find uh, on the record are signals and they're different signals in different places but, uh, but nothing so overt as, oh gee, would you mind if we built a ball? And so, oh, no, go ahead. So, I mean, uh, that, that's not in the documents. Uh, and, but, but I think there's still a lot of investigation historians should do in this period. Okay, time for one final question. Yes, perhaps the lady over there. It's actually one of my students. Oh, sorry. What do you think about the current political situation between countries like Iran and the Western world? Do you think that the prospect of nuclear war is as strong as it was during the Cold War? Uh, you're, you're talking about Iran. Um, the, uh, uh, the Iran situation is, uh, I mean, I hate to put this so uh, glibly, poses no danger to the United States whatsoever. It poses a danger to Israel, and it poses a danger to its neighbors. But, uh, but, you know, uh, but I think in terms of uh, existential threat to the United States, um, you know, even when Iran develops a nuclear weapon, 
um, uh, you know, this is, that's, that's not a danger. That's not the way U.S. leaders ought to think about things. What you really have to do is think about um, uh, the security of the region, and you have to think about the arms race that will explode uh, in that region should Iran develop nuclear weapons capability. Uh, so uh, I, I think that there's very little danger of, uh, of a nuclear event regarding Iran at this time. Um, I, I think, you know, uh, what happens, uh, uh, you know, I've said from the beginning of this election campaign that the two people who could influence Barack Obama's re-election most directly as world leaders are, uh, are Angela Merkel and Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, and Angela Merkel, if the Eurozone crisis goes bad, I think that could really have an impact on the U.S. economy. Benjamin Netanyahu uh, and what he does regarding Iran could really test the U.S. president and U.S. leadership in how we handled a crisis that either grows out of Iranian miscalculation or Israeli calculation. Um, and, and so uh, I, I think it's a really, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. Uh, my impression is that the tensions have been walked back a little bit right now uh, between uh, Israel and the U.S., so I, so I don't think this is. The reason, the, the, what I would draw from my book toward this is it sure would be nice if we understood Iranian domestic politics just a little bit better. Um, because in the end, I think there's some very positive factors in Iranian domestic politics. And our most promising long-term approach to Iran would be that Iran would change and, and, and that we would be able to engage and the region would be able to engage Iran in such a way that would make it a, um, uh, um, you know, uh, the country's not going to go away. So I'm sorry, that's a long answer to your question, uh, but we at the Atlantic Council work on that issue quite a bit. We have a task force on Iran, and, uh, and it exercises us. The bigger danger is not Iran right now. The biggest danger is Pakistan. And that is a, we have the threat of a nuclear failed state in Pakistan. That's the most dangerous. If I were to write about the most dangerous place on earth right now, it wouldn't be Berlin 1961. It would be Pakistan 2012. Okay, on that slightly alarming note, I think I better call the uh, call, call the uh, Q and A session to an end. You've taken you've you've taken us from Afghanistan to Berlin and via Iran and various other places in an extraordinary array of answers. So I think we should give you a further round of applause to say thank you.